Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. We're absolutely delighted to welcome all of you tonight for this uh, exciting event. It is hosted by Stickard and by the Hub for Equal Representation. My name is Camille Landais. I'm a professor of economics here at the Department of Economics uh, at the LSE. I'm also the director of Stickard, and I happen to be co-director with Nina Roussi and Oriana Bandiera of the Hub for Equal Representation, which is uh, dedicated to improving the representation of women and minorities in the labor market and within the economy. Before I introduce the event and our speakers tonight, I just have a few very basic housekeeping points. One extremely important, but uh, apparently I need to mention it. We have no planned fire alarm tests tonight. Therefore, should the alarm sound, please note that the fire assembly point is outside the So We Hope building. And please, you have to note the closest fire exit to you where you are seated. Apart from that, usual housekeeping points. Please uh, keep your uh, phones on mute or uh, silent. We have a hashtag for this event. It's hashtag L-S-E-H-E-R for her. So L-S-E-H-E-R. And finally, the event will be recorded and uh, you can actually watch the whole podcast online. Okay. With housekeeping out of the way, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce this event to you. The event is called Parenthood and the Double X Economy. Uh, and the idea is that we're going to focus the discussion on uh, how the unequal division of parenthood and, and the burden of parenthood actually fuels the systematic exclusion of, of women from economic participation. So it turns out that this is a topic that is very much at the heart of the Hub for Equal Representation that I've talked to you about. And actually today we've presented a new tool called the Child Penalty Atlas uh, in order to measure and compare the impact of children and family formation on women's career and globally on gender inequality. And tonight, what we aim to do is to explore further the mechanisms that lie behind these child penalties and to understand also what actions and uh, the policies that can be taken to tackle uh, this issue of, of family penalty. And we will do that essentially in, in two steps. First, we're going to have a keynote from Professor Linda Scott, and then we'll have a panel discussion animated by my fellow co-director, Nina Roussi, here. And then we will have questions from the audience to finish it up. So now let me introduce uh, Linda Scott. I'm absolutely delighted to have Linda with us tonight. Linda is Emeritus a Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Oxford. And she is the founder as well of a number of initiatives to promote gender parity, including the Power Shift Forum, the Global Business Coalition for Women's Economic Empowerment, She's worked extensively with academics, but also with government, with the private sector uh, around the world. And she's worked as well as an advisor for numbers of, of research organizations, but also for uh, think tanks. Uh, she's worked for the World Bank, for Chatham House as well. But most of us, of course, know Linda for her book, the bestseller, The Double X Economy. It's been released in 2020, and it's been translated in 14 languages. In this book, she really argues that women's systematic exclusion from economic participation has really created an alternate system. She calls that the double X economy. And tonight, she'll 
will tell us more uh, about the XX economy. Our perspective has so greatly influenced the, the public debate on the agenda of gender parity that we are very, very excited to see what she's going to tell us tonight about the parenthood penalty and the XX economy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I can see that in the audience there are quite a few people who did not attend the conference that preceded this, so let me start by kind of setting up what I'm going to talk about with regard to something we just heard in the conference. Um, there's a very exciting um, paper that was presented here uh, by Camille and Henrik and, um, and Gabrielle, and you'll, you'll hear more about that, I'm sure, that's about the child penalty around the world. It established an atlas of sorts of the child penalty from country to country, region to region, and had some very interesting findings. So a lot of what I'm going to be doing today is focused on that particular thing. I was very excited by the project. It opens up a lot of important questions. But I'm also going to try to turn it into an interesting story for you, and also to show you we have a huge amount of data on gender at this point. I think there is still a perception among many people that talk of gender inequality is just based on fictions and hunches, uh, and that is emphatically no longer the case. And so I want to kind of showcase some of that for you as well. I took the liberty of an intervention and changed the topic, the title of this talk to motherhood in the double X economy, and a nod to the fact that everyone here certainly acknowledges that the um, impact of children on the economy, and especially women in the labor force, is something that is very different for men and women. And so it is, it is not really a parenthood penalty, it is a motherhood penalty. And it's very important to understand the gendered circumstances that cause all of this. And I've called it the path of most resistance for reasons that will become, I think, more obvious as I go along. So the findings of this study um, that we just discussed and the questions that it raises are really uh, very important and uh, the authors have invited other scholars in to collaborate on uh, refining and extending this study. Uh, it involves very large data sets and lots of variables and so part of what I'm going to be doing here today is talking to that question of how one collaborates, what other d data there is and could be used. But again, I'm going to try to do it in a way that you didn't have to be there today. So, what they found was that there was a world pattern of gender inequality and the child penalty. It's global, and if you've worked in gender economics for very long at all, this is not even close to a surprise to you. There is a strong association between gender inequality and equality and GDP, uh, with high gender equality going with higher GDP. This also is no surprise if you've been working in this particular sandbox. Uh, there's country variation within regions, not all of the Middle East is one way or the other. This also is not a huge surprise. And within country variations by urban concentrations, in other words, certain things happen in the city and there's a divide with what happens in rural areas. Again, if you think about it, you can imagine some of the reasons why. Here's the part that gets everybody to perk up for a minute. The child penalty is actually strongest high-income, high-equality nations, and it is weakest in low-equality nations. And so what I'm going to be trying to do is speak to how that could be explained. 
I think one of the problems that we have when we analyze gender data is we assume that we're on a straight line to progress. You know, in, in the newspaper, they're always saying, well, at the rate we're going, it's going to be 50 years before we reach equal pay. Well, it's kind of a foolish thing to say, in fact, because there's no reason to think there's a straight line. There's no reason to think we're even going toward that, because there are all kinds of things that can interfere and turn that around. So instead, I'm going to suggest that we talk about a wheel. Right? And I purposely made this an ancient stone wheel because gender inequality is an ancient stone wheel. It has been with us since before capitalism or socialism. It's been with us since before industry, since before agriculture, since before writing, before money. A very, very long time. But we cannot say it's natural. And we certainly cannot say it's good for us. Nevertheless, high equality nations we assume are at the top of the wheel, and low equality nations are at the bottom. And what we try to do in economic development is bring those low equality nations up toward the top by various policies and, and programs. But we tend to not even think about the potential for the high equality nations to ride down. And we, that's in large part because we have not yet seen the end of this period, and hopefully we will not, in which women have won significant rights around the world. But in the past, in the history of human species, there have been times in the past where women got significant numbers of rights and held them for quite a long time, uh, sometimes hundreds of years, and then suddenly lost them. And it generally does happen suddenly because it comes about usually as uh, part of a regime change. It will be a revolution. Uh, it will be a conquest. Uh, it will be the rise of a dictator. Um, it will be the intrusion of a religious body, a theocracy, but it happens generally suddenly and it is complete. As there's really no reason at this point to think it could not happen here, and that is part of what I'm going to talk to you about today. So we're going to look at three different types of countries, regions. First, poor, conflict-ridden countries. Second, transitional middle-income countries, including especially Latin America, Eastern and Central Europe, and Southeast East Asia. These are all um, kind of stand out as outliers in the data that we just looked at. And lastly, we're going to talk about high-income nations, including especially the United Kingdom. So what's the narrative here, all right, behind the data? In economics, there's a well-established principle called the U-shaped curve of women's employment. So on the, and this is where the y-axis is women's employment, the x-axis is GDP, uh, and there's a curve that goes from high women's employment and low income all the way up and around to high income and high employment. All right, the problem with this is that it also needs, to, it implies and needs to account for time. All of these processes unfold in time, and yet most of the analysis treats it as if it were a snapshot and only implicitly talks about the time. So I'm going to emphasize today that we need to look at time because we need to look at change. All right, so we begin in this with high women's employment and poverty. The only way you can start in a poor country with high women's employment is if you mostly count smallholder farmer activity. All right, in other words, basically agriculture at home. This would argue that as industry starts up, women leave the labor force. 
It's kind of strange. I don't see, it's not intuitive to me. At middle income, women's employment hits bottom. This also doesn't make sense to me. But it's been proven over and over, and I respect it, but still, there's a lot about it that's counterintuitive. Then suddenly, both GDP and women's employment skyrockets. Now, when they first discovered the U-shaped curve back in the 1960s, you would be probably aghast to learn that the way they investigated it, the first hypothesis was that they had to figure out why the husbands let the women go to work. And while this seems like a perfectly asinine hypothesis at this point in time, actually, and I thought it was awful and poo-pooed it when I first read it, but actually it was the germane question that in the past, uh, husbands have had so much control over women's whereabouts and their uh, economic interaction that actually the question is, throughout the U-shaped curve, why did their husbands let them do it? I would just alert you that there are countries in Western Europe that men had to give their wives permission before they could work up until the 1980s. Right, so this is a very, by law, all right, so this is actually more recent and more widespread. Okay, so why and how did this U-shaped curve happen? So here we have the same setup as before. And what the authors of this paper we looked at argued is that it's maybe some kind of an infrastructural transition. It's going from agriculture to industry to salaried work, perhaps. I'm going to argue that those are probably good hypotheses to work with, but they kind of have um, I think a missing piece here, and that is, first of all, it says nothing about what the women were doing. They had to make choices and initiate a process, okay, of gender role change in order for this to have happened. So it's very important to take a look at that force before closing the door on our hypotheses. What happens when gender roles change, and we should all know this, is that there's a struggle and there's a process. It takes time, sometimes a very long time. And it's, it's quite disruptive. People resist it. So we have to ask here, in order to explain this, what are the conditions of work at the outset of this curve? What in the world is going on at the middle? Because that is a lot of transition to be packed into a short time. And just generally, what is happening, especially to the women here? But we also need to ask, what about the men? And some of the important things we would need to think about is, what were the gender attitudes among the men throughout this process? And fortunately, there are measures of that, scales that have been tested, scales that have been globalized. It is possible for us to answer questions like that. But we also need to ask that if the women are pushing equality and the men are pulling it back, we need to account for resistance. And this is one of the things that is really very disturbing, I think, about the discourse in the, in the so-called Western nations about gender inequality, is that we tend to avoid talking about resistance. We don't ask for accountability to those who stand in the way of gender equality, and that's a problem. Um, it's also important to recognize that men in these situations are in charge of the institutions. 
Therefore, they have the ability to use those institutions either to further or hinder gender equality. So in that case, you could measure it because you can look at, for example, the World Bank uh, traces all kinds of, by country, the institution of um, restrictive laws or the lifting of them or the outlaw of harmful practices. This is something that we can measure. All right, so what are the conditions at the outset? And then it has been mentioned that I'm you know, pretty steeped in this kind of thing, spent a lot of time in the rural areas of poor countries. So let me tell you that we can document this, but I've also have seen it firsthand. First of all, it's important to know that employment is not the same animal as it is on the, on the high end of that curve, not at all. All right, mostly what is going on there is that women work farms that are owned by either their husbands or their fathers, and they are not paid. Therefore, we cannot even calculate a gender uh, a child penalty really because a child penalty definition implies that somebody has an employer and they're getting paid and so it, it in some sense doesn't even apply in these circumstances any outside earnings if she has any must be turned over to male kin sometimes this is by law usually it's just by enforced practice as a result, the women have no cash, no savings, no capital, and no credit, which of course means that they can't escape. And that's one of the reasons they're excluded from the money system almost entirely. Um, these places tend to practice son preference, which, mean, which is basically rooted in inheritance rules that only allow land to move from male to male. And it has implications for all kinds of other harms because it makes the women and children dependent on a man um, for basic necessities. Uh, everything from nutrition to shelter, to education, to health care. And we can see the impact of, ex I call it excessive male dominance, uh, in these circumstances because gender inequality can be shown to have an impact on things like uh, in those countries on poor nutrition, low education, and in lack of access to medical care. It is common in these circumstances, in these kinds of situations, for marriage to be forced, okay, where the girl has no say and sometimes no knowledge of who she's going to be married to. And there are severe mobility constraints, especially after the marriage. Uh, the women are basically not allowed to leave home or certainly not allowed to leave the village. They have no what I call sexual sovereignty, and essentially they have no ability to say no if somebody wants to have sex with them, certainly their husbands. And there is little, if any, contraception. So that's the second reason that the child penalty is a bit odd concept for here, because not only are you not getting paid and you don't have an employer, but you don't have any choice over whether you have a child or not. Violence of all kinds is high in these community. Uh, not only domestic violence and street violence, but also uh, international and international violence. Gender inequality tracks with all those things. Traditional masculinity is very strong. Again, this is something we can measure quite easily by many different scales. And the people are poor. Now, there's been a lot of talk recently or in the last 10 years or so about how gender equality stimulates growth, and that is true, and it is causal. Uh, and we can now say what the mechanisms are that make that happen. We can also say, though, at this point, that it causes 
uh, poverty. And so I want to call your attention because people are like, oh, that can't be true. This is the one time I'm going to plug my stuff here. Um, I wrote this um, article called Gender Inequality Causes Poverty. Uh, it was commissioned by USAID, the US International Aid Agency. They commissioned it specifically because they wanted me to show how there was a causal relationship between gender inequality and poverty. And so I would, anybody who wants to read about that or doubts what I'm saying, I invite you to go. You can Google just this and you will find it. But I think the thing that's important here is to recognize that USAID is the largest donor in the world to fight poverty. And if they are willing to stake their, put their name on that statement, we should all sit up and notice. All of the conditions that I just talked about, about lack of mobility, lack of contraception, inability to hold cash, all of those things are also measured by an index called the Social Institution and Gender Index. Uh, this is a map of how that worked uh, in uh, 2023. And you can see here that actually gender inequality maps right onto this and some countries are missing, but this is a, an index that has been taken annually by the OECD for probably 20 years. And what it does is it telescopes all those things I just talked about into components and then forms an index. Discrimination in the family, restricted physical integrity, restricted access to production, productive and financial resources, restricted civil liberties. Now, this is the map from this study of um, the raw gender gap around the world, okay? And you can see at the outset that it's really intensely concentrated uh, in certain poor countries. All right, if you saw uh, a map of any other measure of gender inequality, you would look at something like this, okay? And other things, which I'll talk to you in a minute. Because what happens is that the child penalty, when you heat map it, it comes exactly the opposite. Not exactly, but mostly the opposite. And the, the hot points are um, kind of surprising, actually. All right, so that what happens is, is that where there's high gender equality, you have a stronger child penalty. And where there's low, you have a weaker child penalty. But then you have some outliers, which I'm gonna talk about today. In Eastern Europe, Eastern Central Europe, South America, and Southeast and East Asia. Okay, I want you to notice that the fertility rate almost exactly matches what I just uh, showed you in terms of gender inequality. Gender inequality and fertility, high fertility go together. When people ask me what, if I only had one measure to deduce gender equality from, I would say fertility because it, it points to so many disabling factors on the ground. Oh, I should say also um, that another, this, this same pattern occurs, it would look like the same map if you looked at poverty, hunger, armed conflict and fragile states. Gender inequality is a highly destabilizing force. Uh, it is really not good for our survival. It does not in any way, shape or form, it's toxic, help us survive. All right, so what's the turning point here in this U.S. in this U-shaped curve? Well, what it's said to be is that industry pulls goods production out of the home Factories open in the cities and they hire young unmarried women and that is what happens first. And the single women, I'm telling you, they run like hell. In those factories, it is mostly runaways that you find. But the married women have to stay behind because their, parent, their 
husbands won't give them the permission to leave. But now working women in the cities now have mobility, cash, and they can choose their mate, and they become a role model for all the other young women. They're considered all kinds of glamorous, although they're ridiculed as women of easy virtue by the more traditional <coughs> parties. Um, in this event, consistently, patriarchy takes a sucker punch. You know what a sucker punch is. It's when your, your belly is soft and you don't see it coming and somebody hammers you real big and real suddenly and you go, oh, all right, because they don't see it coming. And to some extent, our labor economists haven't seen it coming either. They tend to focus on work conditions that are more about men and more about class and they don't notice that the gender issue of going from the village to the factory is enormous. Okay. When patriarchy takes this punch, uh, they, they don't just take it, they fight back, and so resistance begins. Um, and what they do in this case is mostly, they do use violence still, definitely they still use violence, violence is high, but they start to enact constraints on women's employment. Things like restricting what job you can have, what industry you can go to, whether or not you need your husband's permission, uh, how much you're going to get paid, um, they say what jobs are appropriate or inappropriate for women, what jobs are safe or unsafe. One thing they do not do consistently is enact any kind of protection in the workplace from sexual assault. So violence is high in the factories. In the upswing, education increases for men and women. Contraception becomes widely available, but I must tell you, back to the finding that um, the child penalty is uh, focused in the cities, is that both the origin of the movement in factories and cities and the fact that contraception availability everywhere in the world has tracked with urbanization all right, would have made this to be the case. At this point, married women began to enter the labor force, married women, and GDP just shoots up. All right, now let me show you here. Uh, this is the United States from 1955 to 2010, okay? And it's, it's the only source that I have that breaks um, the labor curve out by marital status. What you see here is that there is a pretty consistent uh, pattern between uh, single women, this is single women, this is divorced women. It looks like there are more of them, but it's a higher percentage. There are, in fact, a smaller population. The largest population is married women. This is the total movement of the labor force, and this is the married women, okay? And what you can see is that they are almost covering each other. They're almost identical, and that's because what is driving that climb is married women. So at this point, equality laws start to be enacted. The government response at this time in the history of the West varied a lot. Um, the United States, for example, did absolutely nothing about childcare, but built a pretty strong uh, base for equality laws by grounding it in racial discrimination rather than sex discrimination. Uh, the United uh, Kingdom enacted uh, equality laws that, honest to God, looked like they had the seeds of failure intentionally planted in them, and then proceeded to just drown them with all kinds of requirements and procedures and payback and all kinds of stuff. Germany enacted um, a bunch of um, child 
motherhood policies that many people around, many women would envy, but these policies tended to cluster together when you looked at them in total, strongly discouraged working mothers. All right, And so that ended up being a very bad situation. That's why Germany's um, fertility rate has been so low. All right, what happens at this point, though, is that when some of those restrictions are lifted, mothers go to work. And that's the last big upswing, is the mothers of small children going to work, and GDP rises even more. After this, we see women entering male-dominated jobs and some experience advancement. But there is still resistance, make no mistake, individual and organized. It continues. It is my belief, and this is why I wasn't terribly surprised about the finding today, that the remaining tool for those who are unfriendly to gender equality in the developed nations is the child penalty. That they are basically using it as a blunt interest instrument to keep women from advancing and to keep the society from reaching equality. And I would ask what's next? And I would suggest it's the lack of reproductive freedom. Okay. because both of those things would tend to push women out of the job market and back into the home, back into, quote unquote, their place. Now, let me give you a timeline here. This is the United States, but it's very similar, at least in the outset, to what happened in the United Kingdom. All right, this is a curve, the black line is female employment, female labor force participation, and you can see that it has gone up steadily since 1890. Okay. It goes up, goes up, goes up, and then it flattens, and that's important. Flattens and declines for the first time in a hundred years in our present. This is, we call our suffrage movement the first wave. Even though it had a strong um, employment component, uh, this, this, we call it the first wave because it was a lot of different causes. And it occurred about the time of the end of World War II. So this is sort of an, uh, World War I. It's kind of an epic here. And then there's a depression, the Great Depression, and, and women's employment stays flat during that time in part because there's a strong attitude at that time that married women should not work because their husbands needed a job. So it's kind of flat. And then we get to the beginning of World War II, and of course, famously, uh, women are called into the workforce to um, make things like aircraft and other defense equipment uh, in the absence of the men. And it's generally believed that they don't stay in the workforce, but actually that's one of the biggest climbs we have. It's in the 10 years after the war. All right, what happens here, uh, this is the early 1960s. First of all, the pill is introduced. This is uh, the most dependable and widely available uh, form of birth control. It makes a huge difference in, quote, family planning. Um, and at the same time, um, equality laws began to be enacted, um, covering a wide range of issues from equal pay to sexual harassment to you can't fire a woman when she's pregnant, you can't change her title and pay her less than a man. Um, all kinds of laws are, are enacted during that time, and I want to point out that they were enacted by men, necessarily because the men controlled the institutions. All right, so it's very important where the men stand here. Then we have about 15 years in which the female labor force um, participation climbs at the same time that all of these laws are worked through the courts. OK, 
okay, that the courts have to declare them constitutional or not all the way through. And then it continues to climb the labor force participation until about 2000, between 2000 and 2005, um, and it declines for the first time in 100 years. So here's where we have to look at the resistance. All right, just as the second wave was beginning, um, they were introducing the Equal Rights Amendment and an enormous anti-equal rights amendment group was formed. And they focused on abortion, which such groups always do because it's a lightning rod. But they always have a bigger agenda than that, I promise you. Um, and they went after the ERA and they talked about abortion. They talked about, you know, we're going to have a bunch of lesbians running around and, and guys using our bathrooms and all kinds of stupid stuff. And, um, and they built this huge movement that later became the origin of the religious right, the Tea Party, the right-wing Republican government that we have now started here, okay? Right up here in about the mid-1990s, you have a fully right-wing Congress. This is what we would call the Newt Gingrich years, all right? in which a lot of progress is, is scrolled back, but where um, it begins to be possible for the Republicans to take over the courts, right? not just the Supreme Court, but others, other courts. And this Roberts Court comes in just as that line flattens. And one of the things, and of course the Roberts Court is the court that just gave us Dobbs, all right, that took away reproductive freedom for women, uh, and that is actually predicated on a similar law previously that gave people the right to contraception and the Supreme Court has already argued that that will, could be the next thing that women will lose. Um, but most people don't realize that um, between 2004 and 2011, the Roberts Court had knocked down every single employment protection that women had won in the 1970s by making it completely unenforceable to go after your rights in a courtroom setting. At the same time, at the lower level courts, they systematically took away women's rights, economic rights, and divorce. So that in either case, in either end, you were forced into a marriage in order to survive. This is going back to the ancient stone, right? It's still there. Okay, so, countries in transition, all right, so we're back to the spinning stone and the U-shaped curve. What this study found was that there were these outliers, seeming outliers in the data, where uh, the child penalty was high and equality was also high, I guess it is, right? Also high. And um, there were several outliers that were picked out, and one of them is the Latin American and Caribbean um, region. And um, actually, they've been kind of a poster child in women's economic empowerment over the last 10, 15 years because they have telescoped the entirety of labor force participation history in, the, in say, the US or in Europe um, into a very short period of time. All right, so you get all the way up from 20% female labor force participation to 50% in this very short time. This is education. Yep, and this is GDP, okay? So it's a positive story, that's why we use it as a poster child. But the fact that this happened in such a short period of time 
does suggest to me that there's probably a lot of resistance on the ground. And we do have rising right-wing groups, and we do have interventionist churches, and we do have all of those things going on there. So that the deep red cover that, color that we look at on the map is most likely a function of the struggle going on on the ground, and not the conditions just in a, shot, a snapshot of current uh, settings. Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe is a really worrisome place for women right now. Um, after the USSR, I actually have my, I teach at Brown still, and what I, the last two years I've had my students do studies of Eastern European countries, um, just so we could talk about it as a total region, and it, it really is kind of a scary situation. After the USSR fell, there was a widespread return to the church in many of these countries. There was what I would consider a regression to traditional family practices, which means things like lots of domestic violence, men controlling um, the finances, women not able to move around freely. And the new governments did not maintain the childcare options available under the Soviets. So you would expect then for the childcare situation to move toward the front. Women did not weather the economic transition well, despite the fact that they had more education and in many cases held more uh, high skill jobs. Trafficking, human trafficking became a big problem in Eastern Europe at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st. Um, the level of trafficking is also a really good indicator of, of gender uh, problems. There's been a right wing upsurge the church intrudes on government. I think the worst example is probably Poland. And what we're looking at now is the specter of war and the specter of poverty. Because remember that gender inequality rolls that wheel around to poverty, right? And war. There's a global study by the Pew Research Council in the US and I just want to give you a sense for what's going on in terms of attitudes by showing you these numbers. This is a global survey. And this is the, the percentage of men that answer that it is not important for women to have the same rights as men in my country. Now imagine, you've told a perfect stranger that it's not important to have gender inequality. And I'm saying, what kind of weirdo are you, okay? What's wrong with these guys? Russia, 53%, more than half. Ukraine, 48%. Lithuania, 46%. Czech Republic, 35%. Bulgaria, 34%, a third. Hungary, 20%, that's a good one. Slovakia, again, 43%. These are very high numbers. Let me show you some to compare it to. Oh, Poland, 26. In the same survey, France was 13% saying it wasn't important. The USA was 7% and actually men were more supportive of gender equality than women were. Uh, Canada, 7%, Sweden, 3%, UK, 5%, Netherlands, 7%, Germany, 9%, Spain, 14%, and Italy, about 21%. And I would just flag these two in France as places that have had difficulty with right-wing movements of late. Southeast Asia and Asia. There was also a very rapid transition in women's employment and growth after World War II. Uh, attitudes and family practice, however, have remained very traditional until this day. But what we're seeing in this case is that the pushback is coming from the women. 
and we are seeing it in things like marriage and fertility. There has been a dramatic decline in the marriage rate in those countries, and the fertility has fallen below one. The replacement rate for um, fertility, the, the number of, of children at which the average woman has to have for the um, society to uh, have a stable population replacement rate is 2.1. If you're down to 1.0, you are circling the drain. It's really a, a dire situation, especially bringing along the aging society, which um, I'm doing my part to grow. Um, okay, um, and decline in marriage rate. All right. One of the um, most prominent examples of what's going on there, and it is pretty representative, is what's going on in South Korea. If you've been paying attention, they've been in the news a lot lately. Recently, a government study reported that only about a third of young adults in Korea have a positive view of marriage, a third. This is a very traditional society historically. That number declines to 26% among young women because career and achievement for them are a higher priority than marriage. The marriage rate actually has steadily declined and it reached three in 1,000 this year. For, um, for comparison, the UK is more than twice that. In South Korea, the fertility is the lowest in the world. It's well below one. And I'm telling you, they are doomed. Okay, because patriarchy isn't going to go out in a bang, it's going to go out in a whisper. Because there won't be anybody there to hear it. Um, okay, and there's now this new four B's movement. Has anybody heard about this? It's the damnedest thing. All right, it's a new movement among uh, young women in South Korea. It's called the four B's and it stands for Korean words that mean no marriage, no children, no dating, and no heterosexual sex. And there's even a new term that has been coined, behong, for a woman who chooses to remain single. So it's gotten enough. And the numbers say, even if they don't have very many women identifying specifically with this movement, that the movement represents large social changes that are already going on, okay? The men seem to be impervious to what's going on. I, I don't really know why. They need to realize that they are never gonna get laid again. <laughs> Okay, what about the high equality nations? Okay, the child penalty uh, is, in my opinion, and these, these data support it, is the last ditch for those against gender equality in employment or anywhere else. This is the last ditch, as in the last stand, and I would remind you that when you climb out of the last ditch, you don't know whether you've won or lost. The government refuses to intervene in the high equality countries. They do not enforce the equality laws. They do not invest in childcare. The judiciary and the labor unions play specific and major negative roles in forwarding gender equality. In many of these countries, there is a right wing rising, all right? And there is some evidence that street violence, outsider violence is rising as well. In all of these countries, and I'll show you some numbers in a minute, that even though there's a broad um, acceptance of gender equality among men, there is a consistently very small number of men who are just vituperative when you bring up gender equality. And you can measure that. And these men um, are bullies usually. There's a lot of studies that kind of overlap. They're usually bullies. They're usually substance abusers and wife beaters. They're uh, more likely than 
ordinary men to be, or other men to be criminals and more likely to be CEOs. Um, they're really just not people you would invite to your house for dinner. Um, they're violent, um, they're aggressive, um, and I think what happens is that, but they tend to have power over other men because they question the manhood of anybody who's not going along with what they want to do with regard to gender equality. And in my book, I argue that this is the thing we need to be looking at because those people are holding the whole society back. And because they can bully other men, they often control institutions. Oh, I just wanted to um, give you an example of how institutions keep the restrictions and forces as global land holding by sex. Um, it's total individuals holding land. All right, this is just an alphabetical list of countries. The top black dots are the percent owned by men, and the bottom red dots are the percent owned by women. This is very clearly not a random pattern, and you really have to be a gender bigot to think this is a result of free choice. Okay, um, but it's really important to notice here that this is the Netherlands, and this is Jordan. And I could point to all kinds of dots with that kind of scary comparison. This is Great Britain. All right, and one of the main reasons that that is so low is because after centuries of practicing primogeniture, the 30% of the land in the UK, a third of the land in the UK, is owned by titled aristocracy, and those guys still only pass land from fathers to sons. Not always, but mostly. And I know you guys have been aware of like the Downton Abbey law and stuff. This is what we call in economic development son, son preference, and we say it with a sneer. All right, this is not something to be proud of, and I don't understand why the other women in Britain don't support these ladies. But that's why it is. I should also say, though, that in the middle, what you've got here are Eastern European countries that in the transition from the USSR got allocated land, but we pretty much know at this point it's going to be temporary already, tea leaves. Um, just to let you know how far, how long this kind of thing has been going on, this is um, essentially a graph of uh, true ownership of land uh, in 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th century Europe. Okay, um, because the true test of, land, of ownership of land is whether you can ruin it, sell it, give it away. Uh, it's not the same as just using the land, it's often confused. And you can see here are the women, here are the men, here are the women, here are the men, here are the women, here are the men, and you know what? The average ownership for women is the same as it is now. No movement. Okay, which just goes to prove once again that once you have capital, you never let it go. United Kingdom. What you see in the United Kingdom is a weird thing because um, we're all about growth, right? Economic growth. But there's a very strong negative economic impact of the high level of part-time work among, among British women the expensive, some of the most expensive childcare in the world is in the United Kingdom. However, British women are highly educated, more than the men. So the, we are really wasting in the United Kingdom the investment in education, and this is, this is called economic inefficiency. This is called, you know, unproductive practice. Um, it also affects household income. So for example, um, it's been estimated that um, the average household in Britain loses 9,000 pounds a year from unequal pay. 
gender, unequal pay. All right, now the average income for a household in Britain is like maybe 37,000 pounds. So that is a significant, a significant amount of household income. That is a significant uh, measure of resources that are unavailable to children. You think of it that way. Um, many of the restrictions, as I just showed you, are still in place. Um, as you saw in the, um, in the lovely exposure of unequal pay in 2018, I think it was done again in 2019, men, uh, many, many companies and industries actively discriminate. Inequality of pay um, was built into the first, the Equal Pay Act of 1970. Maybe many people don't know this. It's only a few pages. Okay, but there were several things um, that I will mention. One is the positive discrimination doctrine, which, by the way, I think Britain is the only country in the world that still has that, um, and uh, which doesn't reckon, well, we can talk about why it's a problem, because I want to get on to the fact that the first Equal Pay Act in the United Kingdom specifically said that equal pay protections did not apply to pregnant women. Specifically said it. Okay, and yeah, you gotta wonder, okay, so you get pregnant, then do you get your rights back nine months later? I'm saying probably not. Okay, what if you have a miscarriage? You know, does that count, right? It seems pretty obvious that those kinds of questions point to an idea that once you're a mother, you're not a good worker anymore, and you've, you don't have any rights anymore. Pregnancy exception, I already said that, okay. As a practical matter today, the enforcement of sex discrimination laws is impossible for most women. Uh, just the first year or two of a sex discrimination suit will cost you about 135 to 150,000 pounds. That is way above the life saving of most British households. It's way above probably what they could get for their house. And the only thing you can get back if you win is uh, six times, up to six times, you're the back pay that you're owed. Now think about it. You made 30,000 pounds a year. Your comparable male made 35,000 pounds a year. That would have been significant for you, but times six, that's 30,000 pounds total that you get back, and you don't even begin to pay the lawyer with that money. All right? So effectively, the ordinary woman in Britain has no employment rights because they cannot be enforced. I've been really bothered to learn that many people in the United Kingdom see in gender inequality and unemployment, especially equal pay, as a private matter and not a social issue. I think that's just way on into weird. Okay, there is a tendency to have a, a code of silence within British firms in part because it's, it's illegal or believed to be illegal to talk about salary. So what happens in a spiral of silence, this is what political science science causes this phenomenon, is that the employees, because it's not being talked about, thinks it's not a problem. There are uninformed, unacceptable excuses that go uncontested. They have children. That's why women are paid. Like they have children, which they say in the same tone that they might say, they vomited in my car. All right? It's just like the worst, gross thing they could do. They have children. Oh, my God. All right. That working mothers are bad for children. That is simply not true. In fact, it, you can prove, and it's in my book, you can prove at this point globally that working mothers are better for children. 
Okay, it's natural. Okay, I won't go into the details, but in my book, I'm going over all the science, all right? All the archaeology, all the evolutionary theory, all the primatology. It is simply not possible to say that male dominance or this business of the mother going off into a whole dark hole somewhere to raise the babies is natural for us. It just isn't. Men do more important, dangerous jobs. So they get paid more. This is, I call this the, the danger premium. Um, but I just have a few words. Uh, COVID, healthcare workers. 80% in the UK are female. Now you tell me that wasn't an important, dangerous job. They saved our bacon and we should be recognizing them. But this is what happens is they just don't get Women are bad at math and science. This is so, 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 so not true. And you can ask me in questions if we have time about why, what the proof is there. But it's massive. It's not only on the neuroscience, it's on the performance data. You simply cannot say it anymore with any evidentiary base. But you hear it all the time in the financial sector, let me tell you. The gender pay gap is a fiction. It's, well, I, I opened by telling you that it was very clearly not a fiction on a global scale. And I will just tell you that the gender gap is measured a lot of different ways by a lot of different agencies, and it depends a lot on how you define it and how you calculate it, but all of them, all of them, find a pay gap. It's not a fiction. That's just an ugly meme. Um, overall support for gender equality among men, mass worrisome attitudes, 17% agree that gender stereotypes are harmful. The rest say they're fine. More than a third believe that gender stereotypes are mostly accurate and serve a purpose in society. A third of male managers think too much time is being wasted on gender equality in the workplace. 40% think men are being asked to do too much for gender equality. At that point, I stopped and I thought, what are they being asked to do? And it took me a few minutes to come up with anything. All right, um, maybe it's you know, helping with the children. Maybe it's doing a little housework. I mean, please. 46% uh, feel pressure to live up to their own gender role, and this actually is a red flag on all of those uh, scales that I told you about that have been tested worldwide for attitudes. But one thing that would sum up all of this is on the domestic side, is that all of the high-income nations are at a, at a really bad point here. I, the, the child penalty is, I think, the last ditch. We're seeing a lot of uh, concern, conservative threats. And if we want to get out from under gender inequality, we have to start holding the governments accountable. Studies have shown that throughout the EU and North America, the English-speaking nations, they call it, it's the governments who are standing in the way, not the businesses. And we need to start making them enforce basic rights of their citizens. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much, Linda. This was a fascinating and very thought-provoking talk, so I'm sure there'll be questions uh, following up. Let me just introduce the last two, but not least, participants of the now policy panel. First, Alison McGovern. So, Alison has been a Labour Party MP 
for Royal South since 2010 and has held several positions in the labor front bench, including shadow minister for international development, for cultural industries and sport. And for the past two years, she has been serving as shadow minister for uh, employment. We're extremely excited to have her here tonight. And then Professor Enric Clavin. Enric is a professor of economics and public affairs at Princeton University. He was previously a professor here at the LSC um, and has served as co-editor at the American Economic Review and chief editor at the Journal of uh, Public Economics, among many other research topics. Enric's work has greatly advanced our knowledge on child penalties, and so we're really excited to uh, have him on the panel tonight. I suppose that last sit is mine, <laughs> so I'm going to come sit. And hopefully, we don't need to pass the mic around and those work, but. Yeah, they work. They do work. They, they okay. Should be okay. All right, so um, we've talked a lot sort of uh, about the child penalty across different um, countries, and I wanted to refocus a little bit the conversation on the UK, which you did at the end of your talks. So it's a great and smooth transition. And I guess I'll turn mainly to, to Alison, but everybody should, of course, feel free to, to chime in. Um, so what the child penalty atlas has been showing is that over the past decade, the UK has an average child penalty employment of 34%. So what this is telling us is that women's employment falls on average 34% more than men's employment uh, after having a first child. Um, I'd love to hear for first a sort of broad reaction to this and then thinking a little bit more about heterogeneity, there are probably specific groups, family compositions, locations in the UK that are especially affected by this child penalty. And so thinking about what has been done so far to help these populations and what could be done uh, would be high opening. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Linda, for your great presentation. That was really um, fascinating. Listening to the figures about the UK and also through, Linda, through much of your presentation, my reaction was like, Surely not, no. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I think it's really good to take the long view on some of these things because we are talking about women's income, obviously, and women's ability to have autonomous, rewarding, creative work. But it's also the fact that money is power. And it turns out men quite like power, I think, over the long uh, period of time. So my reaction to the UK's um, place in the kind of global index of child penalty for women. In many ways, it makes complete sense to me. Uh, I think that we have a particular feature of the UK economy, which Linda really spelled out there at the end, which has worried me throughout my 13 years as a member of parliament, which is about rights enforced, which is about rights in reality. And this goes across the board with rights for people at work, actually. There is something about rights enforcement in the UK that's gone very, 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 very wrong over the past decade, decade plus three and a half years. You remember what happened in 2010. Our em employment tribunal system is really not where it was. If ever it was designed to work well, the barriers to entry in terms of cost are really high now. So that inability of anybody um, without significant amounts of resources to enforce their rights has a trickle-out effect to everyone else in workplaces. So if we were lucky enough to have a change of government and to have a Labour government in place, if we could only do one thing, to me it would be worth having a Labour government if we could just shift that. If we could just get 
an ability for people to enforce their rights in a cost-effective manner to them. To give another example, Linda, to, your, to the one you gave, if a woman finds that, say, her right to paid leave for childcare or paid leave for holiday or any other right that she's entitled to is not upheld, it might be some hundreds of pounds that she's done out of. There is no way that you can pay the fee to get into the tribunal room to get back the hundreds of pounds which might be of great difference to your family. So at a very basic level, we're failing in the UK on that at the moment. I'm going to stop there because we, you know, we can have a big discussion about it. The thing that I'm really interested in also from your work, Linda, is the structural point is how do we see the interconnections between the economy and politics that you mentioned and address what happens because within every step forward of progress the backlash is contained within it and we're seeing that at the moment so my, the question I have is so what so how do we organize or argue for everybody to accept that the progress is a benefit to us all Great. I'm sure there is probably more reactions uh, on the panel, so I'm happy to pass around uh, the microphone. I guess you asked a question <laughs> yourself, so maybe uh, if there are reactions to that as well. No, but I'm happy to have a, a very quick comment here, which is that what we're fundamentally lacking as well is a good understanding of um, where is this resistance coming from. Today, at this little event that we organized, uh, we showed some very preliminary results from a very advanced economy, Denmark, where there was a massive change in the allocation of, um, of parental leave. Uh, basically, in Denmark, uh, a law was passed that forced men to uh, have some earmark leave. And the first result that comes out of the survey we've done is that a lot of people are totally dissatisfied with uh, this new allocation. A lot of people feel less happy about the allocation of, uh, of parental leave than they were before. The question is, where is that coming from? Because at the same time, when you ask these people, do you think that having earmarked paternal leave is a good idea? They say, yes, it is. So I think at heart of this question of, you know, where does this resistance come from? Uh, what policies can address them? I think we need a good understanding of, yeah, what, what's at heart the, the resistance? Is it coming from information, lack of experience, maybe if they actually go through the leave, they're going to feel better and realize that it's, it's really a good idea and, and, and maybe it's not that bad. But I think at heart, if we want to harness policies that make a difference, we, we also need a deeper understanding of the nature of that resistance. So just following up on that and feel free, but are you then saying that it's the role of the government in some ways to try to shift gender norms? Like what's the role of institutions in that context? I'm not entirely sure that politicians are always the best advocates for shifts in culture, particularly as I think it's sort of a crucial point of democracy that women should have their hands on the levers of power. I don't think that needs further argument. I think that's just like a matter of obvious justice. And then in the wider society, I think, Linda, you're right, that like businesses are kind of getting there. The question is, how do we deal with this political tension How do we somehow make people want things that perhaps they, they don't want? And I think you can only try to give people the good quality of life 
and hope that that builds a culture that more people speak up for. And I think this is where I would come back to rights being enforced, you know, that if you can actually give people the ability to earn more money, live a better life, that that becomes the culture shift in and of itself. I wish I had the perfect example of how culture change can happen to be led by politicians, but I think I'm slightly sceptical of that. I think we have to focus on our sort of democratic duty to serve the people who elected us and trust that the wider culture change will happen if that good quality of life is brought about. Does that make sense? A lot of sense. I wanted to foreground today just the fact that that we have resistance and we just don't pay enough attention. We don't recognize that we have resistance. And you can see it in the gender attitudes. But, um, first of all, I firmly believe that it's still the case that most British men, just as with most American men, French men and German men, all still support, they do support gender equality. It's a, gender equality. It's a very small group. But that's a problem. That's my firm belief. I think the data shows that. Um, I think, though, that normally I don't worry too much about attitudes, not because I don't think they're important, but because I'm, I tend to be more of a practical person. Those of my book know that I just hammer on this. You've got to have data and you've got to have things to do. So I would like to suggest two things that I'd like to hear what other people think um, in answer uh, to your question. Um, first of all is that I have found, because and I've worked kind of at the international level and with governments for a long time now, that if you can make an argument for growth, it persuades a lot of people who otherwise would be unfriendly. Um, and so, for example, with um, the proposal to enact universal, affordable, high-quality child care, it's always, oh, we can't possibly, it'd be so expensive, we can't possibly pay for that. And underneath, I think it's always, well, this is something the women should be doing anyway for no pay. But actually, it's, if we didn't treat it as an expense, right, and we treated it as an investment in economic infrastructure, which is what it would be, what happens is, is that there's a whole different kind of economic analysis that comes into that, and what it has shown when it's been analyzed is that those childcare systems pay for themselves in the increase uh, of women full-time in the labor market, sometimes by three times over. So a pitch like that maybe has a little bit more traction. The other thing is I did want to suggest that um, I mentioned that study that um, it was a European Commission study that said that the governments were the problem and the labor unions and the judiciary and all that. And the recommendation I thought was very creative in that report and that was that it should never have been put on the shoulders of individual women to pay out of their own pocket to defend their basic rights. That that should never have been the enforcement mechanism. That instead, it should be something like Her Majesty's, what is it, revenue, HMRC, like the fire marshal. It should have been something where you have an agency that tracks it, enforces it, uh, goes after people who violate it, finds people, uh, so that individual women and companies are just monitored on an ongoing basis, and those individuals do not have to bear that expense. And it seemed to me so simple, of course. I don't know if you could sell that. <laughs> I think it's a good idea. <laughs> I agree. But I respond just quickly, just really quickly two things. I think, again, a big thing that has uh, altered in the British political landscape over the past decade or more is the fire marshal role was really diminished and our Equality and Human Rights Commission that should be that fire marshal, I think, is a place where we could find some more work to be done in this area. I wanted to say something about why are we behind, why are we seeing this uh, resistance. One thing to notice is that what we see in the data is that men and women tend to agree 
on a lot of social attitudes, including gender attitudes. So it's not necessarily the case in the data that women have one view and men have a very different view. They actually kind of agree on either conservative views in some countries or somewhat more progressive views in other countries. Um, and I think what we still see, and I think that's the key reason why behind, is that a lot of people, and this is not my view, but I, you know, a lot of people, the majority of people in a number of countries are very grounded in the idea that women have comparative advantage in childcare and men have comparative advantage in market work. So a lot of people, when they see, for example, these striking graphs of child penalties, look at them and say, well, that makes perfect sense. Women are taking care of children, which is what they do best, and men make the money, which is what they do best. So I think in terms of how do we make progress, why are we behind, I think a key thing will be to convince people that it is a problem. For that, I think one of the most sort of important research findings in the literature, although I think it's one that's gone a little more unnoticed, is the fact that there's a striking lack of variation in the magnitude of child penalties by measures of female labor market experience, female education, uh, pre-parenthood earnings. So even women that are highly educated and have high earnings uh, pre-parenthood also face really large child penalties relative to their spouses. So that suggests that the variation in these things does not respect comparative advantage. It's really not about comparative advantage. And there is an efficiency going on here. So yeah, that's what I wanted to say about that point. Maybe come back to the stuff about childcare as well, but I'll let other people. I'm gonna continue on the same uh, line. If, if we push even further, what that means is that if it's not a comparative advantage story, it might very well be the case that you put in place a lot of all the policies that we're talking about in the UK. Childcare access, parental leave, more generous, and that you don't get much traction on the child penalty itself or on gender equality. And I think in some sense it's also an important conundrum that the, uh, the, our, our politicians and, and, and the policies that we have in mind must, must address. Um, we've seen that very clearly, for instance, in the context of Austria, a uh, country on which we worked uh, hard with Henrik and with Andreas Steinauer and, and, and co-authors. Um, we saw a country that was relatively gender conservative that pushed very hard the agenda, for instance, of, uh, of childcare access, making it the cheapest in all Europe. Uh, at the same time, various parental leave reforms have been implemented, making it quite generous and stuff like that. It didn't have any effect on the child penalty and therefore not much uh, impact on gender inequality. Why? Well, what we've discovered is that, indeed, uh, there was such a strong gender norms that women should just take care of the kids, maybe because, you know, they are better at it or whatever, that, you know, even if childcare was available, even if the uh, mothers and fathers would put their kids in childcare, the mom would still not decide to take up a job. So I think one of the dangers is that we don't necessarily fully recognize how deeply rooted uh, these visions, these beliefs are. And therefore, if we don't try to tackle them head on with the policies, we might be a little bit too optimistic that with just, you know, simple policies in place, we're going to get there. 
I just wanted to add on to the point about childcare because I do, and especially with uh, Alison McGovern here, who's actually, you know, maybe at some point going to make political decisions about these things. I'm a little concerned. Yeah, you live in hope. Uh, we, we, live, we all live in hope. So I'm a little concerned that we're going to kill that hope by now saying that childcare subsidization or childcare provision is ineffective because I don't think we're there yet. I think the jury is still out in terms of the long-term general equilibrium employment effects on women relative to men of these things. We found one thing in Austria. There are other findings from other settings. It seems to be somewhat specific to context. That's sort of one thing. And the other thing is, of course, what we don't capture and which might be important, and this goes back to the question about is it the government's job to change social norms, which is there may be these longer term effects of policies such as childcare uh, on social norms and culture. It is conceivable that some of the big childcare expansions in Scandinavia in the 60s and the 70s were important for changing gender attitudes in those countries, and we're now seeing that in actual uh, outcomes. So I remain a big proponent of public childcare provision, and I think the UK should go in that direction. The Biden administration tried to go in that direction in the US and completely failed, but I was certainly uh, in favor of the proposals of universal pre-K in the US that was part of the original Build Back Better plan about that got killed in the final and absurdly relabeled Inflation Reduction Act that was actually passed. But I don't know if it's the government's job to change social norms, but I think you know, maybe policies do have an impact on social norms. I think we have settings, not so much directly in the context of gender, but settings where it seemed like policies had an impact on social norm. Here I'm thinking especially on welfare reform in the US in the 90s and what happened. This was something that more went against my personal political views, but the change in the political debate in the US in the late 80s and the 90s, which became extremely anti-welfare welfare mom um, oriented in its, in its rhetoric, I think had a um, real impact on attitudes and culture in the US uh, about welfare receipt. As you've mentioned, um, what some people I suppose would call welfare policy, but what I would call active labor market policy. I might just mention uh, a different angle um, and one area where the UK, I think, has a better record. Um, during a similar period in the UK, the New Deal for Lone Parents took quite a different approach to enabling um, single parents, mainly women, to work, many for the first time. And that active labour market approach basically involved specialist support, involved quite flexible support funds from government to enable lone parents to work. And I think it's something that I've been thinking a great deal about at the moment, given that we have a vacancies crisis. And whilst in some parts of the UK, we still have significant problems with unemployment. For example, like Blackpool seaside town has unemployment of around 8%, which is you know more than twice the national average. But largely, we have many vacancies in the economy. And therefore, um, workers should have more leverage. And so you would think that, that the intervention that the UK government makes to assist workers in finding jobs would help use that leverage. 
At the moment, it does nothing of the sort. It's basically trying to force people into any job. The current policy doesn't differentiate between types of jobs. Whereas in the future, I would like to see our approach, particularly to lower paid women workers, to realise some of that leverage. One in five people work below their skill level in the UK. Many of those are women. I think that we could use um, the role of job centres and the traditional role of the labour exchange to provide people with a better choice of jobs. And I think particularly for, um, for women workers, that advocacy, advice and flexible support from government can make a difference into the jobs that they have available. It's somewhat like what we did previously with the New Deal for Lone Parents, but at the moment we face a much better range of jobs available for women, particularly in London and the South East. So I think that there's much more that the government could do on that practical level to intervene. You can file this under fun facts to collect and trade if you want to, but this whole business about, oh, you know, because women are naturally more this and men are naturally more that, I just have to tell you, okay, so I went really down the rabbit hole on primatology and evolution when I was writing this book. All right, two things about our species are considered to be particularly nifty for our survival. All right, there are others, but these two with regard to care. Primates can be divided into two groups. One, where the mothers take care of the babies by themselves, and the others, where the group shares the care. We are a share the care group. That is, that is the kind of species that we are. We have always done this. We overlook it now because we're in this weird little transitional period or dead end or something. And um, so this is one thing. It's very good for us because it means that if the mother dies, for example, out in the forest or whatever, the baby doesn't. And in a lot of species, the baby does, right? Because somebody else can pick it up. The second thing is that human males, other than breastfeeding, unlike most other primates and other animals, are equally capable of taking care of children to the females. Okay? These are two of our most important survival features. And by devising a society where the women have to stay home and the men have to leave the family and go off for never-ending hours is going against our best features for survival. It's just not, it ain't natural. I'm just saying. Can I add, Linda, to your, your fun fact to store and share, um, one of my most favorite quotes? I'm a member of parliament from Merseyside and someone who was previously a member of parliament, though she didn't represent Merseyside, she was from Liverpool, was Eleanor Rathbone. Um, and Eleanor Rathbone, along with um, Beveridge, conducted huge studies into um, work on the docks in the UK, particularly in the interwar period. And Eleanor Rathbone was really interested in the Liverpool docks when the um, First World War had been happening. A lot of women went and worked on the docks in Liverpool. So she um, conducted a large survey of dock uh, managers as to what they thought about women workers at the time of the First World War when they employed women. And one of the dock managers told her that women dock workers had a certain genius for carrying heavy weights. <laughs> Actual quote. But it turned out that when the main men came back from the war, they just didn't want to work with women. So that was the end of women dock workers. But for me, it tells that story of consistently the progress and the pushback. 
Um, but also, Alan Rathburn, um, as I say, along with Beveridge, was one of the creators of the idea of bringing labour exchanges, which were you know, around in Germany and other places, into the UK, precisely so that workers would have better choices about how to get more income for their input. And I think we too often, we, social security is really important for women, and Alan Rathburn was also the architect of family, family allowances, so she knew that, but we always forget that the state can intervene to give people more power in the labour market. And I think, given where we are with labour shortages at the moment, that holds a lot of hope for us in the UK. Oh, but time flies while we're having a, a good time. Uh, I want to make sure that there is uh, a little bit of time left for questions, if there are any. Okay, see one at the back. Is there a mic that can go all the way, or should I be doing it? Okay, it sounds like I uh, should be doing it. <laughs> Um, thank you for this talk. I just completed my master's degree at LSE in gender development and globalization, and this book is kind of why I did that. Um, I'm curious about the comment of growth and then also kind of the allusion to a care economy or the ethics of care, and with the climate crisis and gender inequality, how can we bring that together to talk to economists and um, politicians to make that work and move away from growth towards gender equality and sustainability at the same time. I've said many times that if it turns out to be true that we each have our own personal hell, mine is going to be trying to convince economists that women are important. <laughs> um, I get what you're saying there. Um, I think the thing is we do need to try to get away from the growth idea, but our system is really the measurements, the incentives, everything is built around that, okay? The argument that I make, I think, toward the end of the book, pretty clear, though, is that if we were to change the gender equality situation more toward the double X economy ethic, okay, um, we would reap a lot of benefits in terms of prosperity and health and all of that kind of stuff, but it would also necessarily change us from this zero-sum game uh, economy that we continue to have to a sharing economy. And once you have that, then a lot of that drive to make money, to, whether it hurts anybody or not, I think would, would go away. Um, I do think that we have this way of sort of saying, well, it's got to be capitalism or it's got to be socialism. And this is, in my opinion, Cold War thinking. And I think that we are able to devise something else. One of our best traits also is that we are hugely adaptable, just hugely creative and adaptable. We can do this. I'm going to just add one thing. Um, so obviously, if we bring women into the labor market without men going the other way, then we will increase measure GDP per capita and economic growth. Um, but the way that I think we as economists would typically think about it is not growth is not necessarily the same as what we care about, which is some measure of social welfare, which ultimately depends on two things. What are the effects on economic efficiency and what are the effects on equity or fairness? And so that's sort of how I would be thinking about it. The efficiency question is what I talked about earlier. That's thinking about comparative advantage and understanding that how these things vary actually do not respect comparative advantage, so it is inefficient. Um, so there is an efficiency gain, not just a growth gain, to reducing child penalties and reducing gender inequality. But at the same time, I will say, when I started working on this, 
economic efficiency was not the first thing I thought about. And when I see these child penalty graphs, the reason why I react, and I think the reason why most people who react negatively, is because some sense of fairness, or in this case, the, the lack thereof. Um, there is an, an equity issue here, and that's perhaps the key reason why we want to um, change it. But I do think, Linda, you're doing a smart thing in your book, which is to turn it into a simple economic growth question, which I think is much simpler to convey in the public debate. So I think maybe it's a really smart way of uh, phrasing it and, and convincing people. And I do want to underscore some of what you're saying here, is that at least in the traveling with economic development, I often hear things like, why are we going after growth if it won't make people happy? Right, that, that it's human well-being is what is ultimately what we're trying to get at, right? Okay, and GDP, like it or not, does tend to track with some, some good things for people. Women's economic empowerment, we use GDP as a proxy for um, all the good stuff that it tends to go with. It's, it's not a complete loser as a measure. Thank you. I'm a um, former law enforcement intelligence analyst, and I've seen firsthand in governmental structures how reluctant organizations can be to receive information that doesn't fit an agenda. Um, I worked in Ukraine for an EU program, and large numbers of people are dying now because of the dreadful behavior of those European Commission programs. My question is, the private sector in each of your own countries, are there any particular examples of best practice and where and why that could perhaps be cascaded across wide range of industries. I just hope the South Korean army is keeping a close watch on its armories because um, from what you said about the situation in South Korea, we may see a huge number of incel driven shootings. Thank you very much. I mean, in terms of best practices, I, I think one of the things that um, we know from work in this area that a key factor has to do with uh, labor market structure, including how um, flexible and family-friendly jobs are. Um, and these things vary across different parts of the private sector, different industries, different firms, and I think they vary across countries as well. I think countries with relatively low gender inequality in Scandinavia, for example, have jobs that tend to be more family-friendly and flexible than what I see, for example, in the U.S., where I live. And within a country like the U.S., you see a lot of variation. There is a well-known paper that looks at pharmacies in the U.S., which have become known as this very family-friendly sector that attracts a lot of women with children because it's a good place to work for them. So, I mean, one view which, you know, you can sort of call them, which is sort of very much associated with Claudia Golden, who is a professor at Harvard, is this idea that the additional gender convergence has to come from the private sector changing um, on their own. It's always something that makes me a little uneasy because I, I don't know how that's going to happen. The private sector is going to do whatever the private sector is going to do. They're going to try and make money. And, and so I'm not sure exactly how that's going to play out and how we make sure it plays out in the right way. But, but there's certainly variation in the private sector that 
and practice that seem to have big effects on these things. I might just give a good example and a bad example. When I served on the Treasury Select Committee, we conducted a big inquiry into women in the financial services sector. And we took evidence from a senior leader at a large bank. Um, and he said that he hated uh, working flexibly. His ideal working environment was to come into the office early in the morning and leave late at night. But he worked flexibly and worked from home half the week as an example to the rest of the workforce, even though he despised it. And I thought that was a really good example of somebody living the so-called corporate values that they were supposed to espouse. And I can tell you that one of the worst examples for uh, punishing women for having kids is my workplace, the House of Commons. <laughs> <laughs> right, so I think we have time for one or two more questions, and then we're going to have to wrap up. So. Thank you very much for this interesting topic. Um, I'm myself, mother of three, and a professional woman. I'm a, a lawyer. And I'm quite interested to hear the discussions about the consequences and how to um, you know, overcome resistance and enforce inequality. But if I look back you know, on the causation of my struggles as mother, being, um, raising kids without any family around, um, I will allude to your point when you say, you know, it's collective work to raise kids. And I believe that um, if there are governmental policies that allow other members of the family to chip in, it gives security to a woman, not rely only on affordable childcare, but also to leave children in the care of the family and therefore, you know, to go for further education, to go to you seek, you know, better career, etc. So why do you think the more emphasis and more weight is put on the shoulders of individual women or individual men rather than change, you know, this more kind of in society? Um, because it's, I believe, yeah, I agree with you, it's not private business agenda to improve this inequality, but it's, I think it should be societal objective to raise the children, because this is the objective, to raise the children while allowing women a choice. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying there should be more of a focus on... Yeah, so I'm just curious why at this moment, for the last decade or so, the focus on equality is kind of down to individual women and men, and the family is kind of excluded, including the social policies. Because it, it's a job, it should be paid. It should, be paid. it should be paid, yes. And, you know, in countries where the parents can retire early and comfortably, or, I don't know, aunts and uncles can help out, they should be paid for it because it's a paid job. I think it's not only about affordable childcare, because being a mom, if I had a choice to leave my child in the nursery or half a time with my, I don't know, sister, if I had one around. So I would exercise the, the second choice. So what do you think? Is there any reason for that? That family seems to be like excluded completely from that and not considered as uh, if they help, that it's a paid job. Yeah. I think effectively the kind of policy you have in mind is why don't we extend paid parental leave to the extended family? Why does it have to be maternity leave or paternity leave, if a given family wants the uncle to do it, the grandparent, whoever, you know, the leave could be 
transfer to other family members? Like, I'm trying to put it into a concrete policy proposal, what you're saying? Part of the does not need to be institutionalized, okay? It could be yeah. done by family, but they have to be paid for it. Which they would do under a paid um, leave scheme that, I, that, yeah. My best answer is that there are two considerations that would matter politically here. One is fiscal costs, which is probably important that this might be an expensive policy. And then I think the paid parental leave system has been rightly or wrongly grounded in the idea that it's very important for children to spend their first months of life with their parents, their biological parents. That may be a, a misconception, but I think that has just in practice been sort of the philosophy behind these policies. And so countries have these policies in place for six months or 12 months or however long, and then after that institutionalized childcare takes over. We have some research on whether paid maternity leave during the infant childcare or the, uh, you know, the early parts of the child's life have positive long-term effects on children. And so there's some work, for example, for based on Norwegian data and the introduction of paid maternity leave in Norway, suggesting that there were some positive effects on the long-term effects of children, that is, including labor market outcomes when those kids became adults. But those are positive effects compared to a counterfactual where we don't have that leave. What we don't have is what are the effects of that compared to the alternative policy you suggest. I don't know. So sorry to interrupt, but I'm seeing we have run out of time quite a bit. Um, so please join me in thanking all our panelists, Linda, Camille, Alex. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.